Our Bible reading this morning uh, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13 through to 20. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, happy anniversary to my darling wife. Uh, 17 years. What a day uh, for our anniversary as we look at what it means to keep Christ at the centre of sex. And again, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I'm going to jump straight into things this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. It might be a little bit of a longer sermon than normal because of the importance of this topic. Uh, but I'm sure it's going to be interesting enough for all of us to stick with it. So let's get into this. I don't think it's going to surprise anyone if I say that the sexual landscape these days is complicated. We've got all sorts of questions out there from what sex is, what's good, what's bad, what's healthy, what's toxic, to questions of gender, how many are there, are they fluid, what does that look like, what's the effect that technology has had on sex, and then of course the easy access to pornography and all sorts of other stuff and dangerous stuff that's come along with that. There are so many complicated issues and questions out there, and one of the things that we have to recognize when we start to talk about sex is that As a country, we've got people that have had really wide-ranging different experiences and views on all of these different questions. So what I want to do is just give us a a little bit of a snapshot about what Australians uh, have as far as their sexual experience and thinking about sex goes uh, in today's culture. So, uh, just right off the bat. Are Australians having sex? When you when they were asked this in the recent Australia Talks survey, uh, 19% said never. Uh, this is adults. Uh, 9% said less than once per year. Another 9% said at least once per year. 23% said at least once per month. Another 23% said at least once per week. And 1% said at least once uh, per... Oh, that's right. That should be at least once per day. Uh, I workshop jokes about that 1%, but Fee told me I wasn't allowed to say any of them, so I'll listen to her. Now, that's a a picture there of the different sorts of experiences. What about when it comes to uh, sex and happiness? When asked if they thought that if they had a better sex life, 45% of Australians said they thought that they would be happier, but 22% said that they didn't think that they'd be any happier with a better sex life, and 29% were neutral. So a lot of Australians think sex life is, is a key to happiness, but a lot of Australians also aren't too fussed about it. 
Then we've got a question of what's happening with Australian sex lives compared to in previous decades. And it turns out that on the whole, Australians are having less sex now than they were 10 and then 20 years ago. And this is the same across the English-speaking world. This goes not just for uh, people in long-term relationships and that they've dropped by, on average, about nine times per year, but also for young people who are engaged in casual sex, they're having less and less of it. So a recent study that came out just earlier this year said that men and women between the ages of 18 and 23 had significantly less casual sex or sex, excuse me, without a long-term partner than the young adults who came up 10 years before them and even more so than a generation before that, their parents' generation. So 38% of young adults studied had casual sex in 2007 and that number dropped to 24% in 2017. Now as Christians, you might first think, well, that's a win, right? Uh, A lot of effort was put into the church to try and reducing that sort of number, at least amongst Christians. But just because there's less sexual intercourse being had doesn't mean that there's necessarily less sexual activity. So this is what Dr. Matthew Berry, a Melbourne-based psychologist, says. Older people are defining sex in old money, and Gen Z are defining sex in new money. Think of a different topic, communication. Each generation is accused of writing fewer letters and making fewer phone calls, but actually, our communication style has evolved. Similarly, Gen Z may be having less in-person sex, but they're engaging in more sexual activity. I would argue they're more sexual because they're Snapchatting nudes at 13, 14, 15 years old. So there's less sex happening in person, but there's more sexual activity. And people, uh, as they've studied this, they've looked at the decrease in alcohol consumption, uh, the increase in social media, the uh, lack of some of the social skills that go along with in-person interaction because of all the social media stuff, as well as people living at home longer, as possible reasons for why people are having less sex. So it's not a, a moral move, it's more of a cultural and social one that's been occurring, which is why it's affecting both long-term relationships as well as casual sex relationships. Uh, and of course, when we think about sex and technology and the effect that's having on us, that raises the question of porn, which is just a huge giant in the sexual landscape today. And Australians, when it comes to porn use, are unfortunately somewhat like we are in the Olympics. The only countries that beat us out are really countries that are much bigger than us. So most recently, uh, from the most recent data we have, uh, in 2018, Australia was ranked ninth in the world as far as porn use goes, despite the fact that when Australians are surveyed, they don't confess to doing it very much at all. And what's interesting, though, is, is that as much as Australians use porn, one of the most searched topics for porn these days is ethical porn. That's not porn with a G rating, that's porn that's been based upon consent and all that sort of stuff. So even though we use it heavily, there are definitely questions around uh, how it's produced and some of the problematic questions that go along with that. On the whole, when Australians think about sex and technology, about 45% believe it's been a negative influence, but almost one in five people think that it's still been a positive influence despite all the negative stuff that goes along with it, which most people seem to be aware of. So it's a really, really interesting picture that we see, and that's before we even get to questions of things like gender. When asked, uh, uh, when Australians are asked, do you think that there are more than two genders? 45% think that there are more than two. 38% are fairly sure that there is only two. 15% are neutral. So it's quite a wide range uh, with you know significant 
figures in each camp with regard to what gender looks like. But even that's pretty amazing when you think that 15 years ago, nobody was even asking the question how many genders there are, let alone 45% of people thinking that there are more than two. And then, and I found this really personally surprising myself, when it comes to a question of same-sex attraction, while 47% are not open at all, and about two-thirds of people aren't open uh, to a same-sex relationship, at least in this Australia Talk survey, 22% of people said that they would consider, to some degree, even if they don't identify as LGBTQI, the possibility of a same-sex relationship. Now again, that's not necessarily that they're practicing, that's not necessarily what they consider their orientation, but to a degree, they're open to it, which again is quite amazing and a dramatic shift compared to what we might have seen if we asked the same question 20 years ago. So it's a radically different sexual landscape today than even if we just go back 20, 25 years. Again, not a surprise for anyone, but something that we have to acknowledge because as this you know, brief look at some of these statistics show, we're all coming to this from different places. And that's really important for us to recognize. In fact, and really tragically, one of the few places where we have you know, large agreement on this is some of the negative things that goes along with sex. So sexual harassment, 70% of people in Australia recognize that it's at least somewhat widespread. And with sexual assault, it's even more. 76% of people recognize that it's somewhat widespread. So on the whole, we've got complication everywhere. And then when we get to the church, it's not exactly like it's a much better picture. We've seen over the last several decades where we've had child sex abuse scandals in the church. We've seen links being made between certain teaching in church about men and women, how they relate to one another, and domestic violence and other issues that go along with that. And some of the most recent research into evangelical sex beliefs and uh, history and that sort of stuff suggests that those that have been influenced by sort of classic evangelical uh, books on sex, like I Kissed Dating Goodbye, Love and Respect, The Act of Marriage, uh, all these books have actually been influencing people in a way that they've enjoyed sex less and had more issues. And I do recommend that book, The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Gregor, if you want to look into that a little bit further. So we've got all sorts of questions about sex, and there are no easy answers, at least as far as all of the cultural issues that are actually out there. And I just want to acknowledge, as we get into all this, that one sermon on sex cannot answer all these questions. Right? That, there's, there's too much out there for me to presume in any uh, way to think that today is going to answer all those questions. So instead what I want to do is start with Jesus and look at some of the biblical basics about what it says regarding sex, marriage, singleness, gender, and just give us some of the basic building blocks so that we can think about all these different complicated issues from the biblical basics. When I was growing up learning how to play basketball, my dad would say this to me again and again and again, master the basics, practice your fundamentals. Because all the complicated stuff gets a lot easier if you've got those basics down pat. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on today, getting our basics right before we face a complicated world. All right, so let's start with Jesus. Now for some, Jesus might be a strange choice uh, to start with when it comes to a discussion about sex because he was a man who never married and who never had sex. But it's really important for us to recognize, as we think about Jesus, that he was a sexual being. And I mean two different things by that. First up, Jesus was, by virtue of being a human being, a person with sexual potential. He had the physical, emotional, and mental capacity for a sexual relationship. 
And we even see, sort of by derivation, that Jesus thought about sex and knew about sex in various ways from some of his interactions with people in the scriptures. So, for example, when you look at Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, he says, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Despite the fact that Jesus hadn't had sex himself, he wasn't blind to the situation that people could get themselves in and to what sexual immorality would look like. And Jesus was also willing to break social convention when it came to some of these things in regards to talking to a woman privately about this in the space that they lived in. So Jesus was aware of sex, he knew about sex, and it even says in scripture that Jesus faced every temptation common to us and still remained sinless. And I think we can assume that sexual temptation would have been a part of that. So Jesus was a sexual being in the sense of he had sexual potential and the capacity to make those choices if he had wanted to. But the other thing that I mean by saying that Jesus is a sexual being is that he was born sexed, or what we might call gendered today. Okay, it says there in Luke 10, uh, sorry, Luke 2, Today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Jesus was born a male. And that shaped him in all sorts of different ways. Uh, biologically, he was shaped by what was happening on a chemical level in him physically as a man. Culturally, it affected him to be a man. In all sorts of ways, his development was affected by the fact that he was sexed. That it works on a biological, biological level to shape him. Now you might ask yourself, James, this makes me a little bit awkward to talk about Jesus as a sexual being, why are we doing this? And I'll tell you why, it's important for two reasons. We need to understand that Jesus was a sexual being, because when we look at Jesus, we're looking at the perfect human. He is the image of God in human form. He was the completeness of what a person could be. And to be that, he didn't need to have all of his sexual potential or sexual desire fulfilled. When we look at Jesus and we see a man who never married and who never had sex, we don't see a person whose human potential was limited or was less in their life because they didn't have sex. And that's important because it communicates to us really clearly that even though sex might be a good gift from God and sex is something that we have the freedom to enjoy in marriage... It's not the basis for understanding who we are. And this is important for us to grasp, both in a cultural sense more broadly, but also in the church where we can make some similar mistakes that culture makes. What I mean by that is this. In culture, uh, we have this idea now that our sexual identity is who we are. Sam Albury, who is a, a same-sex attracted minister based in the UK who's taught on Uh, on this a lot, has this to say about our culture. He says that our culture says, you are your sexuality. Your sexual feelings define you. They are who you are at the core of your being. They are you at your most you. If you don't affirm someone's sexuality, you're effectively rejecting who they are at their deepest level. That is the unforgivable sin in our culture. If you are your sexuality, then sexual fulfillment is key. Sexual and romantic fulfillment becomes everything. Being sexually fulfilled is intrinsic to being complete as a human being. 
a life without sexual satisfaction is a life not worth living. Now, the church doesn't say that. The scriptures don't say that. But our culture does. For our culture today, the idea that in some way if your sexual, sexuality isn't completely fulfilled, if it's limited in any way, then that's an act of dehumanizing you. It's an act of reducing your capacity to be the full human that we think you're meant to be. Your sexual identity is your identity, and to limit that is to actually limit you as a person. But scripture would push back against that in a really hard way. And certainly as we look at the example of Jesus, we see that from a biblical perspective, that just can't be true. If Jesus was a sexual being who never fulfilled his sexual potential or his sexual desire, then it can't be if he is the sinless, perfect Lord and Savior of all and the epitome of human flourishing, that if you don't have sex, that somehow you are less than or reduced down to something less than what others who participate in sex are. And so we've got to realize that Jesus bases human fulfillment upon something else, and that is our relationship with God the Father through Christ. So it says in Scripture, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. In Galatians, it talks about how there is neither male nor female, neither Gentile, nor neither Greek nor barbarian in Christ. Our primary identity as Christians is not based on our sexuality, our ethnicity, our nationality, or any other social or cultural markers. It's based on us being a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, our sexuality, our race, our ethnicity, our nationality, our, our wealth, all these things will absolutely affect who we are as a person and shape us in various ways. I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are. But the primary thing when it comes to understanding who we are is that we are loved by the Lord and a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the starting point for understanding who we are. And what that means is, is that whatever our cultural experience, whatever our sexual experience, that doesn't mean that we're going to be less than as human beings before God and when we understand that well, in our own hearts as well. So that's the, the, the first thing why it's important to understand Jesus as a sexual being, to respond to the cultural claim. But the other thing that we need to recognize is that church has been affected by the culture around us as well. And there's all sorts of subtle ways where we haven't necessarily intended to, but we have kind of, as the church, elevated marriage and sex as the highest level of being compared to being without it. What I mean is is that we've sort of said that, again, if you are lacking a spouse or a family, that somehow your life is less than those who are lacking, or sorry, your, your life is less than those people that have that sort of stuff. So, to give you an example, just think about the time, any time that you've said to somebody, you know, how is it that you're still single? All right? Danny Trueweek, who runs the, the conference Single Minded, has an interesting observation about this. She says, when you express your confusion about someone has, as great as, as us is still single, what you're actually expressing is the belief that marriage is a reward for the good people. It's the prize you rightly deserve when you've got a winning personality or a charming manner or a well-functioning life or a smart mind or a pleasing appearance or all of these things combined. You see, what you're actually saying is that marriage is for the worthy. You're affirming the notion that our value as individuals is tightly, even ultimately, connected to how likely it is that someone will want to put a ring on our finger. 
As a friend recently wrote, while people might intend it as warm praise, they say it because they've brought into the assumption that the better people are the ones who managed to get married. Single people out there, how many times have you thought to yourself, I don't have a partner, what's wrong with me? Married people, how many times have you subtly judged someone where you've met them and thought that they were great, but they don't have a spouse yet, and you think to yourself, there must be something wrong that I don't see. It's that sort of idea that where we think that, again, marriage is the reward for the better people that subtly promotes that marriage and family is the Christian ideal instead of finding fulfillment in the Lord wherever we are. Sometimes it's even been said that singleness is a bad thing. Popular reform preacher John MacArthur said this in a sermon not too long ago. Uh, talking about biblical manhood and womanhood and the importance of marriage and all this sort of stuff, he said, singleness leads to sexual sin at a rampant level because you've got all these people with these pent-up desires and they are about to explode. Now that doesn't sound like the scriptures, like Jesus or the Apostle Paul, when Paul wrote, now for the matters you wrote about, it is, a, it is good for a man not to marry. I wish that all men were as I am, single, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. A little bit later he says, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Sex is not the be-all and end-all. Marriage is not the be-all and end-all. And we as the church have to own that we've gotten this mixed up at times just in a different way from the way that the world has. It's a confusing picture for us, but by focusing on Jesus as a sexual being, but also still the epitome of human flourishing, that we get some helpful corrective with that. Now, again, I just want to say we can't talk about everything today, but I hope that by putting out some of these basics, we're getting a sense of just how complicated this picture can be and how cultural issues and issues in the church certainly merge and meld together. And so, while not being able to answer every question, what I want to do with the last part of our time together is just point us towards some biblical basics that, again, help us to reorientate and refocus our thoughts on what the Bible says about sex as the building blocks for how we operate in this complicated world that we can keep thinking through. And if you've got questions, specific questions coming out of this, please don't hesitate to ask. So, here are the three points I'm going to look at briefly. We are sexual beings, all of us. Sex is for marriage, and we are to honour God with our sexuality, both marrieds and, not singers, but singles. Sorry about that. So first up, we are sexual beings. It says in the beginning that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. One of the reasons why Christians are so big on this question of how many genders there are is because it's tied right at the very beginning to what it means to be made in the image of God. When God chose how he was going to be imaged in this world, he chose male and female. And that's a really important thing because there's something in both of them that represent who he is to the rest of the world. And while we can recognize that there are some very rare cases where physically this gets confused, like very rare, we're all born with a biological sex, male or female. But the neat thing is, is that when you look at the scriptures and you read through them and you see all the different people who are made in God's image, you see a richness in what it looks like to be male or to be female. 
There's no set pattern. There's no set rule or law about what it has to be to be male or female. Now, there's a general shape to lots of stuff, absolutely. Testosterone, estrogen, these are things that have real effects. And certainly we can see patterns that are common to male or female, but that's different from something being a rule that you have to follow or an expectation that you have to live up to. And when we try and put cultural rules onto biological sex, we get ourselves into all sorts of trouble. You can love opera and dancing and be a male without any problems biblically. You can be a woman who is a mechanic, a CEO, pick any you know, traditional male profession. It doesn't matter. That doesn't change the fact that you are born male, female, and that is who you are. So in this instance, uh, clothing very much does not make the man or the woman. Wearing a particular color does not make you a man or a woman. Being a certain profession does not make you a man or a woman. These are all things that we put on top of this idea of what it means to be male or female, and they're not helpful. Especially when we, again, look at Jesus and see that he doesn't always fit with what we might consider to be the the typical pattern for maleness. Jesus is a man who, in one of the very, very few times that he describes himself, says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Hardly the classic definition for masculinity, right? Jesus wept publicly and openly when confronted with sorrow and grief. We need to recognize that when we look at Jesus, we see somebody that doesn't naturally fall into either of these sorts of traditional patterns as much as he was unquestionably a biological male and a man in the culture of his day. You can be an opera lover as a male without having to worry about doing it in a masculine way. You can be a female CEO without having to worry about doing it in a feminine way. If you seek to be an opera lover like Jesus, your biology will take care of the rest. If you seek to be a CEO like Jesus, your biology will take care of the rest. And so God created us male and female. We're all sexual beings. We all have sexual potential. We all are given a biological sex. But we can do that in all sorts of different ways. So that's point one. Point two, regardless of our sex, gender, however you want to describe it, sex is for marriage. Again, from the very beginning. Sorry, I've got the wrong reference up there. Jesus is quoting from Genesis 2. It's actually from Matthew 9, this particular quote. Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, like we just said, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Australia is not a Christian country. And so we don't currently have a legal definition of marriage in Australia that matches up with what the Bible says that marriage is. But the Bible is really clear on this. There's, there's, it's a really tough case to get anywhere else in Scripture apart from the conclusion that marriage is for a male and a female, one man, one woman, joined together. Biologically, that's how it works. The way that God created things, that's how it works. And it's okay for us to be able to step with culture on this, Because scripture calls us to follow Christ first and to keep him at the center of all these things. But there's no doubt about this, that sex is for 
marriage. It's the place that God has ordained for us to enjoy the gift that it is for all those who are married and called to that life together. In fact, it's not just the place for sexual intercourse, it's the place for all sexual activity. So again, Jesus also said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Looking lustfully, that desiring of someone, we think about sex and technology today and all the different ways that we can interact with images and videos and sounds and all sorts of stuff on the internet, Jesus again is really clear that the place for sexual activity is with your spouse and not for anyone else outside of that relationship. So sex is for marriage. Sexual activity is for marriage. Now again, I know how complicated it is out there. And when we think about questions of dating and the classic questions of what you can do and what you can't do and all that sort of stuff, we don't have time to really deep dive into that today. We talked about it a bit at youth on Friday, just what dating looks like and and that sort of stuff. But if you do have questions, please feel free. Ask, get in touch. Happy to talk about it. So sex is for marriage. We're sexual beings. And point number three, we are to honor God in our sexuality. Jesus said that the greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus says to you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and elsewhere in scripture strength, it's this idea that all of us, the entirety of ourself is to be dedicated towards loving the Lord and that includes what we do with our heart, mind and bodies. So in 1 Corinthians 6 it says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your body is the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What we do with our bodies matters. And Paul frames this particularly when it comes to sexual sin. He's saying that there's something distinct about it. Now, it doesn't mean that in any way that sexual sin is beyond God's grace. If you've messed up, if you know that you've been participating in sexual immorality, this is not something where you're to be ashamed before God or think that you can't receive his forgiveness if you're believing in him. All sin is put to death through Christ. That He has paid the punishment for all of our sins. One One of the... the, the lies of the devil is to try and condemn us who have committed sexual sin, who are practicing it right now, is to try and tell us that it's too bad, that this is the one thing that God cannot forgive, that this is this special category that's just horrible and shameful and you can't talk to anyone about it, and that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. God's grace is sufficient for all sin. God di- Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sexual sin. There is freedom and mercy for all who believe in Christ in this space. And yet, the Bible does say that there's something distinct about sexual sin. It's not what we were designed for. It's not what our bodies were meant for. As Christians, they are to be temples of the Holy Spirit, and that's to be the framework that we think about what we do with them. But what's important is, again, to recognize that this goes for both married and single people, even if it does have a bit of a different shape. So for married people, the way that we honor God is by fulfilling the responsibilities that we have to one another within that marriage relationship. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, be faithful to her, and likewise the wife to her husband, be faithful to him. 
But also, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. In marriage, the way that God is honoured through our sexuality is by being faithful to one another, but also in a spirit of reciprocal love and generosity and charity towards one another. It's a loving and mutual exchange for people in that husband and wife relationship. Now, this is not a sermon on how to have a great sex life, but I know that for many people out there in different seasons of marriage, this is a really difficult and painful thing that only gets made more difficult when we think that sexual sin is something to be ashamed about or that problems in sex and marriage is something that we can't talk about. But you can. And again, we might not be experts uh, on sex and there's all sorts of books and resources to have that, but the Bible's got some really great tips, at least for how we can think about this and if you need help, again, please come and talk to us. Don't let it get to the point where it's completely painful and feels like it's beyond hope before you talk to us about this. What about singles? How do they honour God in their sexuality? Well, again, Paul actually talks about this a fair bit. He says towards the end of chapter 7, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. What it looks like to honour God in your singleness as a sexual being is to recognise that this is actually a gift from God. That you have time and a focus of heart that can be given fully to the Lord, which if you are a married person, you know doesn't exist in the same way after marriage. We were joking around at Youth on Friday night uh, because we, of course, have got some, you know, still fairly recent weds in Zach and Ash uh, leading there. And, you know, just listening to them talk about how life has changed already. It's still very close for them, remembering what it was like to be a single person, not living together, the time that you had, the way that you spent your time. It changes dramatically after you get married. And so for single people, to recognize this season not as something that condemns you, or says that you're less than, or says that there's something wrong with you, but rather to recognize that in this season that you're in, regardless of whether it's for a lifetime or for a season, this is something where you can honor God in it with your full devotion to the Lord and thinking about what he wants you to do with that focus that won't exist, that undivided attention that won't be there if you are in a marriage and family situation. All right. So what we've said is, is that Jesus is the one that we look to to see what a human flourishing looks like, and that is somebody who was not needing their sexual potential and desire fulfilled in order to be the fullest human that they can be. Jesus is the example that sex is not the thing that we need to be happy and fulfilled in this world. And then when we look at the Bible, we see that while we're all sexual beings, We can express that in all sorts of different ways as male and female. That sex is for marriage. That's the place that we're called to enjoy that gift when God gives it to us. And whether we're married or single, we're called to honour God with our sexuality. As I said at the start, I know that we're just skimming the surface. But that's still also the deep, deep, 
foundational building blocks for what it looks like to answering all the other questions that we have in this world. So don't be afraid to shoot them through. Uh, join us for a conversation after this and the Zoom chat. If you've got something private that you want to talk about, by all means, get in touch with us. But I'm going to pray now that we'd remember this well and live it out faithfully in this world. Father God, thank you so much that you are the complete fulfillment for us. That in Christ we have everything that we need to live and love well in this world. We thank you uh, for the gift that sex is for all those who are married, for the fact that it's enjoyable, for the fact that uh, it's something that we can rejoice in. It's a special picture uh, of all that you have done for the church. And we pray, Father, that we would value that regardless of whether we're married or single. But at the same time, Lord, we wouldn't elevate it unjustly. We wouldn't make too much of it. That, Father, we'd be willing to be out of step with our culture and recognize that you are the source of everything that we need in this world and our fulfillment as people. So, Lord, help us to live out our sexuality well, to be male or female, but at the same time, Lord, recognize the diversity that we have in that and to focus first and foremost on living for Jesus in everything that we do. We pray, Father, that we would honor uh, you with our sexuality, that keep our, our sexuality expressed in the places where you want it to be and be willing to limit it in the places where you don't want it to be. That we would treat our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit well. And Father, whether we're married or single, may we honor you and lift you up in all the glory that you deserved, whether for a season or for entire lives. Father, so that we might never doubt that you are the source of everything that we need and what we're created for. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.